0: Hello, everybody. Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today it is my great pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Andreas Kirstenberger, who is Senior Research Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Carolina. He is also founder and president of Biblical Foundations, an organization devoted to encouraging a return to the biblical foundations in the home, the church, and society. And in addition to having authored, edited, or indeed translated close to 50 books, he is also editor of the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. Dr. Kirsten Berger, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed.
1: I'm thrilled to be with you today, Julian. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me to have this conversation. Well, it's a privilege to have you on. Now, we're going to be discussing
0: a book that you wrote with your colleague, Dr. Michael Kruger. Now, that was several years ago, actually. I think it was published back in uh, 2019. No, that shows my age, doesn't it? 19, <laughs> no, 2010, um, which I think is actually no less relevant and no less important now than when it first came out, uh, which is why I'm keen to speak with you about it. Um, a book which is called The Heresy of Orthodoxy which is certainly a very provocative title. The Heresy of Orthodoxy sounds a bit like a contradiction in terms, but of course it's not. We'll, we'll get quickly into the reasons why that does in fact make sense as, as we go on with our discussion today. And the book is something of a rebuttal to the influential ideas of the German 20th century theologian and historian Walter Bauer, Uh, Probably not known to many people, but a very influential man, and indeed a rebuttal to some extent to those who have followed in his footsteps, such as, uh, most famously, uh, Bart Elman. So a rebuttal to the hypothesis that, I'm stating this very briefly here, that what we know today as Orthodox Christianity—and of course I, I don't mean Orthodox in a denominational sense—I mean in you know, a standard, normative Christianity that we're familiar with—the idea that that is in fact just one form of Christianity out of a wide variety of early Christianities that simply persists today because it won out in the battle for ideas. That's the basic idea. So, as I say, your book rebut. That in a very scholarly way, but a very readable way, which is why I'm highly recommending this book. Um, but we'll get into all that uh, fascination and complexity in a minute or two. But let's first of all find out a little bit more about you, Dr. Kirstenberger. Um, I understand that you originate from Austria and that you have a doctorate in economics. Um, how did you come, therefore, to be a professor of New Testament in the United States?
1: Well, as you can imagine, it's a long story. But uh, in a nutshell, I was uh, grew up uh, a Roman Catholic and uh, as a teenager and as a college student uh, at the University of uh, Economics in Vienna, I turned to philosophy and the arts and, and even played in a band for a while just looking for answers, looking for meaning, and uh, through, uh, you know, what appeared to be a chance encounter on a train uh, with an opera student, um, I heard the gospel, um, I think really for the first time, and uh, started reading the Bible, actually read through the Bible twice in about a six-month period, just uh, out of pent-up spiritual uh, hunger, never really having uh, read the Bible before. I was about 23 years old at that time. And uh make a long story short, had a fairly radical conversion experience about six months later and really felt a strong call to pursue uh, theological training. ended up leaving my native country of Austria, went to the United States first for a master's degree and then later for a PhD, uh, studying under a scholar named uh, D.A. Carson. Since then, I've been teaching uh, Southeastern for the most part the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, I'm primarily a biblical scholar, a New Testament scholar. I've done uh, quite a bit of work in, on the Gospel of John, but especially the last uh, five or ten years, I've increasingly become interested in apologetics and in defending the reliability of Scripture, and as you mentioned in this book, particularly also the truthfulness of historic Christianity.
0: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned there Donald Carson. He is one of my heroes. Presumably you chose him because of one of his specialities being the Gospel of John. That was that at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School?
1: Yes, I've studied there with him in the early nineties. Uh, he just published his commentary in ninety-one and uh. and I ended up writing my dissertation on John twenty twenty-one as the father sent me, so send I you on the mission theme in the Gospel of John. Wonderful. As I say, one of
0: my heroes. How did you get on with him personally? What was he like?
1: Yes, uh, I took five or six seminars with him on various topics such as uh, the use of the Old Testament in the new... And uh, actually wrote my dissertation uh, using his own personal home library while he was on sabbatical in Cambridge.
0: <laughs> great, so you obviously got on with him fairly well then um okay well let 's turn to this book, then the heresy of orthodoxy now uh, the very brief introduction that I gave a few minutes ago really was merely to whet people 's appetite so let 's get a a clearer view of what this book is really addressing so who was this man, Walter Bauer, and what were his ideas, essentially, on early Christianity?
1: Well, uh, Walter Bauer, uh, not to be confused with another German scholar named F.C. Bauer, Ferdinand Christian Bauer, who was the founder of the Tübingen School. More people actually think of him when they first hear the name, but he lived about a half century earlier. So Walter Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, is probably best known for his uh, well known dictionary, sometimes referred to uh, as, as Biedak, Bauerdenker, Arndt, and Gingrich, a uh, Greek English lexicon. So he was a, a preeminent lexicographer, but uh, he also uh, was a historian who wrote a very influential book, originally came out uh, in German in 1934 shortly before uh, World War II, uh, with the title Orthodoxy and Heresy in earliest Christianity. First, he was primarily influential in Germany, but then uh, in 1971, he was finally translated into English, and since then has also been very influential in UK and also in the United States. So uh, the so-called Bauer thesis, simply that In the first century, there were multiple Christianities. There was not one orthodoxy. First came a diversity of Christian beliefs. The boundaries were not clearly drawn. uh, And in different regions, different versions of Christianity, and only later, uh, primarily through the influence and the ecclesiastical power of of the Roman church, One uh, version was imposed on all of Christendom. And so this is what you and I today would think of as Christianity. But that is only a second, third, and fourth century phenomenon. Right. Immediately, as you're talking about that,
0: uh, some terminological problems seem to jump into my mind. And one is, in fact, the word Christianity. Because, you know, if Christianity is Christianity, well, that's what it is. But we're speaking here in a kind of sociological sense, aren't we, when we talk about a variety of Christianities. When we normally talk about Christianity, we're talking about Orthodox Christianity. But here we're talking about this kind of umbrella term for some sort of attachment, some sort of religious attachment to the person of Jesus, the character Jesus. But those theologies, in this particular thesis anyway, those theologies could be really quite different from each other, couldn't they? Quite substantially different.
1: Yes, I think you're right. Definitional issues are very, very important in this debate. I think, you know, one of the the main arguments that we're dealing with in our book is that the actual term uh, orthodoxy, just like, say, the term Trinity or or Christianity, as you mentioned, is a bit later than the first century. And so people might argue that because the term only uh, appeared later, the concept was also a later development. It was absence from the first century. And I think Uh, That is why people like Bart Ehrman referred to the uh, first century Christians as what he called proto-orthodox. Of course, our response would be, well, the phenomenon that the term orthodoxy seeks to capture, meaning that there's one standard of doctrinal fidelity to what the early Christians believed that was certainly present, even though the term describing this orthodoxy uh, was only coined later.
0: Yes, okay. Yes, we need to get that clear in our minds. So when we perhaps talk about proto-Orthodoxy in this context, we are in fact talking about very early tradition related to jesus which we were and you are arguing i believe too this is carrying on the teaching of jesus and the apostles and flowers into what we know as orthodoxy today by virtue of the various councils that took place later but all related back to that original tradition so when we say proto-orthodoxy we are essentially talking about the same strand of orthodox tradition aren't we
1: Exactly. So we don't necessarily want to get bogged down in, in, in mere semantics. So we want to understand the yes. actual phenomenon that we all are seeking to describe, perhaps using slightly different terminology. Now, what's really confusing here, uh Julian, if I may briefly uh mention that, is that Walter Bauer himself in this book I mentioned, of course the title says Orthodoxy in earliest Christianity But that's actually uh, rather misleading because he actually does not deal with the first century in that book at all. I think that's important for our listeners to understand what he means by earliest Christianity is really second century Christianity. What he says is that the uh, first century evidence is too disputed. And uh, difficult to ascertain for him as a historian to deal with. So he's actually starting already in the second century, which, of course, raises all kinds of mythological problems. If you set aside the documents, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later in our conversation, that are really closest to the time of Jesus. Yeah. Yes, indeed. It strikes me immediately as a methodological
0: problem there, setting himself up to fail. Um Okay, well, you mentioned these four centres. There were others, but you mentioned the four main ones, uh, Asia Minor, so that's sort of western central Turkey today, uh, Egypt, Edessa, that's... um sort of between Turkey and Syria and Rome. And as you say, he argued that the Roman church, the Roman center of Jesus' belief, uh, essentially dominated the situation, rewrote Christian beginnings and erased these earlier varieties of Jesus' belief. Mm -hmm. So as this idea develops over the decades and influences more people. You call this the Bauer-Ehrman thesis because you're referring there to Bart Ehrman. Of course, others will be included, but Mm -hmm. Ehrman is so influential these days that you call this the Bauer-Ehrman thesis, which kind of brings up the question to me, how really influential are Walter Bauer's ideas today in academic circles?
1: Yeah, I think through uh, scholars like Bart Ehrman, who was a best-selling author, very charismatic figure, he's doing a lot of public debates as well. I think the thesis is very influential. It's essentially the uh, the primary view that you see uh, in the media as well. I think the intriguing thing is that Bart Ehrman himself essentially uh, assumes the Bauer thesis. He doesn't ever really extensively argue for it. I think he he would even be willing to acknowledge that the Bauer thesis in many of the details is flawed, but I think he would argue that still in a a broad sense, this belief that diversity came first and the uh, later notion of orthodoxy was essentially just more of a – political phenomenon. In our book, we talk about the fact that, of course, this resonates very strongly with this notion of tolerance and of inclusion and of diversity that we certainly see in in, in Western culture. Yes,
0: you say a number of times in the book, that's what keeps the idea very much afloat. In fact, that's the subtitle, isn't it, to the book, How Contemporary Culture's Fascination with Diversity Has Reshaped Our Understanding of Early Christianity. So, I mean, your book is as much a criticism of postmodern political correctness as it is a criticism of Bauer himself and and those ideas. Um, Were his ideas received enthusiastically back in the 1930s when that book was first published?
1: No, I think it's actually interesting that as far as I've been able to see, his ideas initially didn't get that much traction. I think partly it might have been a function of World War II as well and, and the difficult times. But uh, I think in many ways uh, it was a bit more of an academic exercise. And it was really not until after the English translation was published that scholars like uh, James Dunn and others took up the mantle. And then more recently, as he mentioned, Bart Ehrman, there were some people in Germany like Rudolf Bultmann, who was a towering German, a New Testament scholar, though, who did uh, eventually pick up some of his uh, thoughts as well. So while not immediately. Uh, The the Bauer thesis definitely got some traction maybe a a decade or two after the original publication uh, even in Germany but then I think especially as I mentioned more recently in the UK and the US.
0: Do you think it was possibly waiting for the right time to uh, rear its ugly head as it were? Was it waiting for the right kind of intellectual environment sort of the the rise of the postmodern sensibility for it to really get some traction?
1: Yeah, I think it is in some ways actually odd. I think uh, if Bauer were alive today, he would be rather surprised and amazed how certain people actually pressed his thesis into service. I think that's certainly not something that I think he ever would have envisioned. Uh, but I would look at it as a revisionist historiography, where, you know, somewhat anachronistically, people like Ehrman are essentially looking for some rootish, some grounding in the first century of this notion of diversity being early, and so the Bauer thesis, as you mentioned, was simply there to use to basically make that case for early diversity, and and of course, if diversity was early, they would also validate as you mentioned, the postmodern, you know, supremacy of diversity is the preeminent concept today.
0: Okay, well, just before we look at some of this putative diversity, and indeed there was diversity, but just quite how diverse was it? What was the depth of that diversity? Before we look at some of that greater complexity there, I want to ask you a question which may seem a little unnecessary in some ways, but I think it does have to be asked. And that is that all this can seem rather abstract, talking about books originally published in German tens of years ago and what sort of thing. Um, why is this so important that you would bother to write quite a lengthy book about it? I mean, why does it become a bee in your bonnet at all?
1: Michael Kruger and I, we met when uh, he was still a, a PhD student at the University of Aberdeen. He has worked there under the renowned uh, scholar Larry Hurtado. So his area is is more uh, early Christianity. My area is more uh, the New Testament itself. We uh, both came to realize that in the media, the predominant uh, paradigm seems to be that Orthodox Christianity, or you might call it historic or traditional Christianity, is often portrayed as you know just one among several options, and maybe not the earliest option. You, you often see references to the Gnostic Gospels, uh, such as the Gospel yeah. of Thomas, that were supposedly earlier. And there's sometimes, even especially in Bart ermans work, this conspiracy theory that the Orthodox actually suppressed alternative versions of Christianity. And so this is really what true scholars and historians need to recover uh, those earlier beliefs. That is just an almost ubiquitous narrative that people are presented with in the popular media. And so we wanted to defend the notion that truth, biblical truth, is not merely a function of sociology or ecclesiastical power grabs or oppressing alternative views, but it is actually the predominant belief of the first Christians that is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures and also in the teaching of Jesus. Okay. Well, let's look
0: then at some of these arguments to assess how diverse was Christianity. So one of those areas that you look at because Bauer did is Asia Minor. Now you say in the book that Bauer theorized based on John, that is the John of the book of Revelation, and a bishop of Antioch called Ignatius. He theorized based upon uh, essentially what they didn't write, (laughs) because they hadn't written to every church in Asia Minor. Therefore, there must have been some kind of disagreement. And he, I believe, thought that those other churches were Gnostic. Did he have any positive evidence for thinking that those other churches were committed to a prior Gnosticism in that area?
1: Yes, you're right. In in chapter two, we look at each of those four regions that Bauer looked at, and and we look at it just strictly on historical grounds. You know, some people feel like, well, we have a certain belief in, in, in the inspiration of Scripture or certain other theological convictions. Uh, we put those aside. At this point, we're simply trying to take an open-minded look and see, are there any sources that Bauer maybe uh, did not look at? Like we mentioned earlier, he didn't really look at first-century sources— of course, uh, any sources will still need to be interpreted. And so sometimes we take issue with the way Bauer interprets uh, his sources, especially as you mentioned, certain extrapolations from what the sources do not say, the precarious uh, argument from silence. And Bauer really starts with Edessa, which is a probably the least known of those areas, and uh, we feel that that is problematic in and of itself because the evidence from there is limited and at best inconclusive, and so he really should have started with Asia Minor. So I'm glad that that's uh, where you started. I think that's what we would argue that's the best starting point because we have certainly plenty of first century sources just in the New Testament. We have the Book of Acts, we have Ephesians, we have John's Gospel, we have John's Letters. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, we have the book of Revelation, and then we have Ignatius from the 2nd century as well. Now, in terms of Bauer's claim that somehow uh, historical evidence from Asia Minor shows that there was diversity of beliefs, in part based on what John does not say, uh, the uh, eminent scholar Paul Trebilco, who wrote several major monographs on Ephesus, points out that really Gnosticism postdates orthodoxy; it doesn't predate it at all. And I think this is really not a new insight. uh, I think it's been at least half a century now that this notion of an early first century Gnosticism has been debunked. I don't really know any respectable scholar today who still holds to Gnosticism being a first century phenomenon. So I think That already decisively pushes back against Bauer, saying that that there was a sufficient presence of Gnosticism alongside what you and I today might look at as proto-Orthodox or Orthodox uh, Christianity in the first century. The fact is, if anything, it's the other way around. Gnosticism was parasitic on Christianity rather than the other way around. Um, well, Well, can I just challenge the idea
0: that Gnostic beliefs were not around in the first century because People argue that there is some indication of that in various of paul's writings if i just go here just for an example here to first timothy he mentions possibly some well let's call it proto-gnostic tendencies you know if we could talk of proto-orthodoxy maybe we could talk of proto-gnostic as well so he talks about the irrelevant babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge so gnosis well that kind of suggests that he's countering something which is to do with what hidden teachings and hidden knowledge which may be perhaps a kind of proto-gnostic idea there
1: Well, I think, again, definitional issues are important there. I uh, recently also wrote a commentary on 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, so I I appreciate what you're saying there. I think scholars today would refer to the passage that you mentioned, the last verse, as more of a uh, gnosis with a small g, perhaps uh, the claim that there's some esoteric knowledge, that uh, some false teachers held uh, maybe a certain elitism, But I think, uh, you know, Gnosticism with a capital G presupposes a more established set of beliefs comparable to Christianity as as an established set of beliefs. If we had the time, we could talk about what second century Gnosticism looked like. And and it was was quite elaborate, uh, but, but it's clearly a second century phenomenon. So I would not be opposed you know, agreeing with you that there might be uh, what you might call some precursors that you might refer to as either proto-Gnosticism, but maybe that's even saying too much, or maybe just the word gnosis, that, that there was this notion among some early antagonists of Christianity that that there was maybe more than just, you know, the notion that Jesus was the Messiah predicted in the New Old Testament, and then and, and that some claimed some additional knowledge, the word gnosis, we should mention, of course, all all that it means is knowledge, right? And so Mm. it it doesn't necessarily require this, you know, philosophical dualism between, you know, flesh and spirit and matter and the supernatural and and then the notion that you have multiple levels of reality and eons and, you know, all kinds of fairly elaborate Mm. schemes that were concocted, uh, you know, in the second century
0: yeah I have to say that even if it's meaningful to talk about some kind of proto gnostic Christianity in those very early new testament times i I can't immediately see how the mere existence of such groups, assuming you know for the moment just for the sake of argument that they did exist i don 't see how their sheer existence could create a problem for the claim that proto orthodoxy is you know the genuine tradition because it seems to me that the force of the point would have to be that such proto-Gnostic groups were closer to the original teachings of Jesus. Otherwise, you know, what is the point? Um But that's really problematic to my mind, because that seems extremely unlikely. And I mean that on historical grounds, largely because of the very existence of proto-Orthodoxy itself. Because if Jesus was, you know, contrary to what we've always thought, some kind of wandering gnostic sage why would anybody from the proto-orthodox camp take any notice of him at all why would they as people coming out of that jewish matrix of ideas looking for the messiah make into the jewish messiah someone who really didn't fit that bill at all so you know the very existence of proto-orthodoxy speaks against that idea in my mind anyway
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, to some extent, when you actually look at the historical and the literary evidence, uh, what do we know about the beliefs of the Gnostics? Well, we have certain Gnostic writings that uh, were found uh, roughly the same time as the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, the so-called Nakamadi Library. Mm. And that would include uh, sources such as various apocryphal gospels, Gospel of Thomas and, and others. And uh, I think the best evidence that we have is that those are from the second, not the first century. So this is a fairly stubborn historical fact. Mm. So anyone who would argue that Gnosticism really predates Christianity is just bumping up against the stubborn fact that the, the documents, all the documents that we have are second century. And so clearly, you know, the Gospels uh, that we have in the New Testament uh, predate those other Gnostic Gospels, which... You can see when you look at, you know, historical documents such as the Moratorian Canon, which dates to around 180 AD, which includes only the four Gospels we have in the New Testament. Uh, You have uh, church fathers like Pyrenees, just referring to the four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's no canonical list that we have uh, that includes any of the Gnostic Gospels alongside the four canonical Gospels. And so, again, uh, clearly... Those other Gospels were not considered to be, you know, serious rivals or alternatives alongside the other Gospels. I think there's a clear primacy of of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The fourfold Gospel, as the early Church looked at it, over any later Gospels. And uh, the other thing to point out there is that the word gospel is really a misnomer because, you know, the gospel of Thomas is just a saying source. It collects about 114 sayings of Jesus. Uh, We think of the gospel as more a narrative that culminates in, in the passion narrative surrounding the crucifixion and resurrection of jesus well the gnostic gospels are simply not narratives like that so in some ways it almost be better to not even call them gospels but call them sayings collection perhaps we're really dealing with quite a different genre here
0: yes um i'm trying to think of the man's name um stephen patterson I believe he argues that because the Gospel of Thomas is a sayings gospel, as you say, that's a misnomer, but a a sayings set of writings, that that could be therefore parallel to Q, the Quevella source, which many people believe is central to the gospel tradition. Um, And therefore Q would be early, and therefore perhaps that gives an impression that Thomas could be very early as well.
1: Yeah, well, um, there's at least two or three things that might need to be said in response. (laughs) That certainly... Okay, sorry. uh, ...what people refer to as Q for the German Quelle would be a document that might be a a shared source for Matthew and Luke for material that Mark does not include that might have looked uh, somewhat like uh, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, just a collection of sayings. I think uh, certainly... I would agree that the very existence of the Gospel of Thomas would seem to indicate that it it is possible that uh, a document like Q existed— If so, of course, if Matthew and Luke used it, it would have been (laughs) written prior to them. That would mean that certainly there's no reason why sayings, collections of Jesus themselves could not have been written earlier. I think what he would not demonstrate is that the Gospel of Thomas was early, Mm -hmm. uh, because in the Gospel of Thomas we see certain Gnostic beliefs that are also attested in some of those other Gnostic documents found in the Hammadi library, such as that final saying where it talks about uh, women not being worthy of life unless, you know, they become like men and, <laughs> yeah, you know, you have already this matter, spirit dualism, entrenched. So it quite clearly seems to be a reinterpretation and appropriation of some of Jesus' sayings that we read about in the Gospels, but somewhat baptizing them into this Gnostic way of looking at the world. You know, certainly anybody listening is certainly welcome to look at the primary evidence uh, for themselves and, and, and read through the Gospel of Thomas. And I think what you will probably find is that quite often you will be reminded of sayings that we do have in the New Testament Gospels, but there's kind of a strange twist to it, which is this Gnostic adaptation of those sources. So
0: absolutely. I, I read a book uh, several years ago called The Secret Sayings of Jesus, and they made a very convincing case in there that Thomas' Gospel, so-called Gospel, uh, was derivative very clearly of the four canonical Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, yes. um, you know, the way they put that evidence together was extremely convincing. I do recommend people look at that book as well. I'll put that in the show. No, it's the secret sayings of Jesus. Okay, well, let's turn to uh, one of these other centers here. Um, we have Egypt. So again, he was arguing that there was a, a Gnostic-style Christianity that preceded orthodoxy in Egypt. Yes. Um, he held there was no orthodoxy until the 3rd century. Now that,
1: I understand, is really outdated scholarship now. Is that right? Absolutely. I, I think uh, you summarized his views very well, he says that there was no separation between the orthodoxy and the heresy even in the third century. But we have evidence from Alexandria, such as Clement of Alexandria, that clearly proves otherwise. You know, either he didn't sufficiently consider, or in some cases, he he misinterpreted because he already started out with this thesis of diversity, and so I tend to think, in many ways, he was probably biased. Toward that, you know, anytime you start out with a thesis, you, you tend to try to validate that thesis. And if you're not careful, you tend to interpret a given set of evidence in a way that might comport with your thesis. And I think that's what seems to have happened in his assessment of the sources from Egypt.
0: Yes, I consulted a book by a guy called Arland Hultgren. This is a book called The Rise of Normative Christianity. This is published in the mid 1990s. And, um, he says, contrary to this idea that orthodoxy didn't arrive in Egypt until the third century, he says that, in fact, there are several Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts or fragments that have been discovered in Egypt since Bauer's day that are dated as the second century. <laughs>
1: Yes, and I I think you can see from Bauer's standpoint, since Gnosticism is only really demonstrable in the second century, you know, for him to be able to maintain that heresy preceded orthodoxy uh, in places like Egypt, he has then to show that orthodox Christianity didn't really significantly enter Egypt until the third century at the earliest. And so I can see how that would lead him to marginalize evidence to the contrary that you have mentioned.
0: But I must ask you, in passing here, about various characters we do know who were Gnostic teachers in Alexandria or connected to Alexandria in Egypt. So we have, I don't know whether these names are correctly pronounced, but I'll have a go, Basilides, Mm. uh, Valentinus, uh, Carpocrates, these are all people who were Gnostic, weren't they, in, in their teaching and connected or indeed teaching in Alexandria. And quite an early data, we have Basilides here teaching from 117 up to 138. How does this fit with the picture?
1: Well, again, I think um, we come back to the fact that Bauer neglects to consider uh, first century evidence really unfortunate, because what we're arguing is that Orthodox Christianity already was strongly established widely across the then-known world in the first century, across the Greco-Roman Empire and so forth. We show in in Chapter 3 of our book, while you might have local heresies in various places, only what you might call Orthodox Christianity, apostolic Christianity, was represented everywhere, you know, broadly speaking. And and so I think what Bauer does is he somewhat exaggerates both the early nature of Gnosticism and other heretical movements, and he also exaggerates their relative importance over against Christianity. And then conversely he fails to consider the powerful evidence, first century evidence, for the prevalence of apostolic Christianity. Uh, and so you end up with this lopsided picture It makes it look like apostolic Christianity and uh, Gnosticism or other forms of heresies were somewhat on par with each other in different urban centers in the first century, uh, when in fact, I think a less biased historical assessment would come to very different conclusions, especially if you consider the first century evidence that we do have. And and so I think it, it comes back to looking at the Gospels and making a case for their relevance, for their reliability. Uh, and of course, that's a huge issue that, you know, he basically does not even really address.
0: What well, I'd like to come to this area of Edessa, although you say there's not a great deal of data on this area, certainly not in Bauer's Day. Uh, so it's rather curious that he should choose to concentrate upon that. I understand that he argued that Marcionism was the original form of Christianity in Edessa. So that's a kind of dualistic belief that pitted the you know, the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New Testament, that is Jesus, with a really diminished Bible that used Luke and Paul's letters, bits of Luke, I believe, and some of Paul's letters. You say in the book that that is actually quite unlikely mm-hmm. that Marcionism was this original form of Christianity in Edessa. Why do you say that's unlikely?
1: It's actually very surprising because Marcion uh, did not flourish until uh, the mid second century and uh, was not even all that influential. So again, uh, he would have to argue that Christianity was not present prior to the mid-2nd century in, in this area at all. And uh, I think also Marcion scholarship would indicate that clearly Marcion himself was parasitic of Orthodox Christianity. In other words, You know, he used Christian writings as a foil, uh, as you mentioned, in arguing for the supremacy of the the God of the New Testament over against the vengeful God, as he saw it, of the Old Testament. And so as a result, he he truncated the Christian canon, uh, which presupposes a a larger canon and some sort of a selective theological set of criteria that Marcion used, again, uh, presupposing apostolic Christianity as the foil that Marcion used.
0: Yeah, but that wouldn't... I mean, I agree with you. It does look like that, doesn't it? That he's paring down Christianity to make his own sort of de-Judaized version of Christianity. Uh, but then why couldn't it be the case that Marcionism then migrates across to Edessa? And that was, in fact, the first form of Christianity that they happened to come across.
1: Well, I think the fact is that some of what Bauer does there is is he, he uses arguments from silence. And uh, he says, just because we have limited evidence... In that region, for the presence of apostolic Christianity, therefore, uh, Marcionism uh, was earlier. And uh, I think, if anything, that points to the precarious nature of putting too much weight on really quite obscure region, which is, I think, why we... Point out that probably Asia Minor, where you have an abundance of evidence, would probably be a better place to start. I think just when you look at how do we do our historical work, I think it, it just makes sense that we we don't exceed the bounds of the of the available evidence and, and, and don't extrapolate, you know, any undue conclusions. But we look at places where we have simply more evidence. Yeah. Actually, in the book, you
0: do mention an article that also a listener has actually drawn my attention to. Um, this is called The Origins and Emergence of the Church in Edessa during the first two centuries AD. So this is by somebody called L.W. Barnard. And uh, they argued that the first form of Christianity in Edessa was, in fact, some kind of ascetic form of Jewish Christianity that had formed there because they had been uh, evangelized by missionaries from Palestine um you do mention that in your text what yeah, weight right. what what weight do you give that i mean that if that's true then the idea that Marcionism was the first form would not be true at all it would be some form of jewish christianity
1: yeah certainly there is um uh, you know various bits of evidence and uh I think any listener who is interested in the New Testament evidence as well, I think would probably likely conclude that it just seems odd for a historian assessing the question of whether or not there was such a thing as a commonly agreed upon form of apostolic Christianity in the first century that of all places they would go to Edessa in the second century and then look at Marcion. To tackle that problem, it seems to be, at best, a very roundabout and indirect way to to get at a question when, certainly for an unbiased historian, you know, be a a much more straightforward, direct way to access the primary evidence, you know, which is obviously the New Testament evidence. And uh, certainly, you know, we have plenty of evidence with regard to Rome, uh, Asia Minor, Ephesus, in the New Testament and so I think uh I would suggest that for a historian who wants to look at the best sources and the earliest sources, that would be the most appropriate place to start. So I think I feel that Walter Bauer was at least very idiosyncratic in what he chose as a starting point and how he weighted the available evidence. And as I mentioned before, uh, excluding the best and the earliest evidence, uh, of course, is really not good history. So would you say that actually
0: arguing from silence is pretty much a big part of his methodology?
1: Yeah, and uh, having a tendency to overplay the evidence for the presence of heresy and the influential nature of heresy, and underplaying the presence and even the earlier presence of apostolic Christianity. So it it adds up to a picture that seems uh, lopsided and already uh, you know biased in favor of his thesis that he was. Setting out to prove rather than as he claimed to be the subjective, uh, neutral historian. And uh, as a result, uh, as we So in chapter two of our book, you have a long string of critiques of the Bauer thesis that have not been very kind to him. Uh, You know, you have my good friend and colleague, Daryl Bach, writing a book, The Missing Gospels. And you have dissertations like one by Thomas A. Robinson, who critically examines the Bauer thesis and several other, you know, book length or article length critiques that have all fairly trenchantly critiqued it. So in our book, we have the luxury of drawing on many of those critiques and and then taking it to the next level and asking the question, how come if Bauer's thesis has been so widely discredited, it is still as influential today through the work of people like Bart Ehrman, as it in fact is.
0: Which is why you keep on bringing up this uh, philosophical atmosphere that we're living in these days, and particularly the postmodern turn. Well, let's look at Rome, because this is... uh, the villain of the piece as far as Barrow is concerned so this was the center he argued of proto-orthodoxy he argued that it was extremely powerful in comparison with the other centers of christianity and so because of that it simply won out in the battle for ideas um now one thing you say is that he said that this form of christianity this proto-orthodoxy had nothing to do with jesus is that right did he really argue that
1: yeah i mean there's a lot that is really idiosyncratic in his view if If I remember, I think when when he discusses Rome, his major evidence for saying that the Roman Church was so powerful so early that it could almost single-handedly impose its will on the rest of Christendom is a document called First Clement, which dates to about uh, 95 or so AD, and uh, he says that in that document, Clement, Bishop of Rome tried to uh, get the church in Corinth in line. And so somehow, again, what he extrapolates from First Clement is that the Roman church was so powerful as to pretty much strong arm the rest of Christian centers to basically uh, fall in line with the Roman version of Christianity, which I, I think most have argued that he's really overplaying the ecclesiastical clout of Rome that... Early, I think most would would, even ancient historians or patristic scholars would say that there was more of a plurality of early centers and that the Roman church would have been in no position to impose just its form of Christianity on all those other major urban centers.
0: I know this is a rather a subjective kind of thing, but uh, when you read First Clement, do you get the impression from that that he is being particularly heavy-handed? Is he issuing threats? I mean, do, you, do you get that kind of feel from it?
1: There may be a sense in which the church in Rome, being that Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, the church would have assumed a certain degree of preeminence and authority. You look at the the Epistle to the Romans in our New Testament. So I'm not arguing that the Church in Rome was not a an important church, but uh, I, I think it clearly is a quite a leap to go from that to saying that Rome was in a position that I think uh, church historians would tell us it did not have until much later to basically uh, assume the, you know, the formal authority over Christianity, of course. Uh, many would date the, the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church to, I think, 600, I think, with Leo. And clearly, you know, the preceding centuries might have been moving in that direction. But, but Roman Catholicism, of course, uh, certainly is not, a, is not nearly as early in, in this monolithic, uh, you know, authoritarian sense, if you will.
0: Yes, and, and as you said earlier, you would have to argue that proto-orthodoxy was just centered in Rome and didn't really have much of an existence elsewhere, such that Rome needed to push its power upon everybody else, but As you say, you know, in the the New Testament, it's very clear that, in fact, proto-Orthodoxy did exist widely around the Mediterranean. Uh, But, of course, Bauer didn't bother with that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So that's probably my favorite chapter in the book is chapter three, where we move past Bauer and we say, well, he doesn't look at the first century. But now that we've looked at his evidence for, you know, the second century in those various urban centers, we're going to look at the New Testament anyway, because we think that's really what's even more important. You know, there's a long list of passages in the New Testament. You think of Jude three, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. One random example or or Acts two forty two that the early church right at the beginning devoted itself to the apostles' teaching, Galatians one The first Pauline letter in the New Testament, you know, Paul calling out for preaching a different gospel than Paul preached, which is really no gospel at all. You know, it's hard to overstate just how early uh, apostolic Christianity is purported to be in the New Testament writings themselves. Yeah. And
0: when you look at the New Testament, you do find some level of diversity there, don't you? I mean, you talk about legitimate diversity Mm -hmm. in the book. So you will find differences between what Paul writes and what uh, the Synoptic Gospel writers write. And John's theology has differences, of course, to the Synoptics. And of course, um, James, the letter of James (laughs) is famously... Often counterpointed with the teachings of Paul. You do find these various sort of alternatives there, but that you argue in the book that they're different flavors of Orthodox Christianity. They're not really different Christianities.
1: Yes, uh, and I think that is such an important distinction to make that sometimes people like Bart Arman fail to make, and so they use the term diversity in both senses, both in the sense of, you know, different style, different outlook, different even vocabulary or emphases, perhaps that are complementary. And then also maybe two or multiple sets of beliefs that are actually contradictory. So we would say, well, we claim that the first sense of diversity, uh, legitimate diversity, as we call it, is certainly Present in the New Testament, and I think that's really a strength of the New Testament that you don't have this artificial, you know, uniformity imposed on the New Testament documents, whether it's uh, the four Gospels or whether it's the letters. You mentioned Paul and James, and the question of uh, faith and works. On the one hand, and then on the other hand, you have uh, this illegitimate diversity, and and clearly you have the Colossian heresy. Uh, you have uh, heresies mentioned in Second Peter and possibly First John, and in the you know letters to Timothy and Titus, and so forth. And so, in Chapter Three of the book, we look at each one of them in turn, and I think what we find is, which is really intriguing, is that you know the Colossian heresy was just limited to the Lycus Valley there near Colossae or the Heresy in Second Peter is is really not attested elsewhere. And so, you know, you could go through each of those heretical movements mentioned in the New Testament writers themselves and see that they're very localized. And so really the only form of Christianity that is at all pervasively found throughout the then known world would be what you and I today would call apostolic or historic or orthodox Christianity. Yes,
0: indeed. That takes us nicely into part two, where you, where you mentioned apostolic authority, because that's part of your argument in part two. We are talking about picking the books, so the the canon of the New Testament. Which books actually make up the New Testament? Um, so you point out that Bauer's thesis did have an impact on scholarship in this area too, because obviously if people accept Bauer's thesis that there was no orthodoxy or heresy in early Christianity, those two things don't really mean anything, uh, but rather various Christianities, you know, vying for attention against each other, then those scholars are likely to ask questions why should we accept the New Testament canon as authoritative at all? It's just the collection of documents favoured by the Orthodox camp, isn't it? Uh, So maybe it would have looked like a very different New Testament had some other form of Christianity had the power to continue and not be uh, stamped down by Rome. Um, So you answer that with this really intriguing double-pronged argument where you look at covenant and... Apostolicity, if that's that's the right word. You look at the covenants in the Old Testament and you look at the office of the apostle in the New Testament. And those two things you bring together to um, argue that the canon of the New Testament is something that makes sense historically. How does that work?
1: That's right. And, uh, you know, when you say you, of course, I know you mean you in the plural, uh, Mike Kruger and I together. And, of course, uh, I was primarily responsible for part one, which we just discussed. And Mike, who uh, is a canon expert, he wrote several other books on the canon as well. He uh, makes, the, I think, the very strong argument that in, in many ways, just like the Old Covenant led to a collection of Old Covenant documents, if you will, our old testament so the new testament or the new covenant rather also implicit it was implicit to that new covenant era and the establishment of the new covenant by jesus that in due course and in due time it would also lead to the the composition and the collection of a series of new covenant documents which eventually came to be the new testament and so the idea of Canon is really implicit in the Old and the New Covenant that those are centered on. And so as a result, then, there is a certain uh, historical and theological logic underlying Mm -hmm. why we have a New Testament. It is predicated upon the establishment of the New Covenant by Jesus. So the idea, if I've got you right,
0: would be that it's uncontroversial that there was the Hebrew people and it was their experience, it was their belief that they had come into a relationship with the God who is there, who had given them various promises, um, yeah. relational promises, you know, with responsibilities, etc. So we talk in terms of covenant, but promises, let's say. And along with that came this process of inscripturation of those promises. Um, so they were familiar culturally with the idea that this relationship with God would be written down. So then when we find the Jewish belief, as we're talking about the orthodoxy, here, the Proto Orthodox with the Jewish believers come to believe that this character, Jesus, is the Jewish Messiah. They are therefore going to naturally believe that God is doing something again, something new, something interesting, something significant, and would look to and expect the inscripturation again of those kinds of promises, those relational promises. So they would be looking for a canon of writings to naturally emerge. Is that, have I got you right with that?
1: Yes, I, I think that was a very accurate and helpful summary of what we argue in, in, in part two of our book. And I, I think it's important to realize that this is very different from the type of random process that people like Bart Ehrman are suggesting here who wrote a book uh lost Christianities, and another one lost Mm -hmm. scriptures. And, you know, listening to him, uh, there were just uh, multiple candidates. And so the church was just kind of, you know, groping, thinking, you know, which would be the best books. And in the end, as we've uh, mentioned multiple times, it was just a matter of whichever books happened to support the Roman church's preferred set of beliefs, Orthodox Christianity, that then were chosen in the canon, not because of some sort of an implicit, you know, covenant and canon consciousness that flowed from Old Testament Israel and then into uh, Jesus and the apostles and, and the early church. And so I think our model is much truer to what we actually find in the biblical documents. And I think there's just very little even historical evidence for this kind of Random procedure that Ehrman postulates here. Not to mention the fact that someone like Ehrman, of course, claims to be primarily a historian. But then, as I mentioned, the best historical evidence we have, apart from scripture, would be early canonical lists and the writings of the church fathers. And, and as I mentioned, uh, very early, much earlier than the fourth century, uh, you're in the second century, have. Lists that include Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and none of the Gnostic Gospels in the canon. And the same would be true for the rest of the New Testament. I I should add that, of course, uh, there's a sense in which uh, one would expect that the church uh, had to go through a certain process of validating the apostolic nature of the various letters. And that's what we find. Maybe less significant documents such as 2nd and 3rd John or 2nd Peter. You know, it it took a bit longer for the Church to arrive at the settled conviction that they, too, should be included in the canon. So we're not denying that there was a certain process of canonization involved that ultimately uh, culminated in the 3rd and 4th century. But much, much earlier, there was this sense that there were the four Gospels and then uh, Paul's letter collection and so forth that were the true representatives of this new covenant type of movement that christianity represented
0: yes and part of the argument here is the role of the apostle now that can sound like well, a very ecclesiastical term Oh, the apostles you know it's like a very old thing that we can dispense with but actually apostle has a very important role within this argument very important role within the very early church now in connection with this idea of covenant and the growth of the canon what is your understanding of the importance of apostle? Uh,
1: the role of apostle in the New Testament was similar to the role of prophet in the Old Testament. You see passages like Ephesians 2.20 that link the two, you know, Prophets and apostles, or you have uh, 1 Peter 1 10 to 12 as well, talking about the seminal role of the Old Testament prophets. And so they were the, the primary spokespersons and, and the ones who epitomized the covenant centeredness and covenant consciousness in ancient Israel. And so then the apostles, if you will, took up the mantle of the Old Testament prophets and did something very similar for the new covenant people of God that ultimately led to the development of the New Testament.
0: Yes, I think that's very persuasive, actually. So they're the mediators of the covenant in the way the prophets were in the Old Testament. They would be associated with the writing down of these promises. And so we find that being recapitulated um, in the New Testament era. That makes historical sense if we're saying that, indeed, <laughs> Christianity comes out of this Jewish matrix, which does make most sense to me, certainly. Um I noted here, I wanted to put this into the conversation. You do bring it up in the book, but uh, this is evidence of... New Testament writings being considered Scripture at a very early date we have here, this is 2 Peter 3 uh, verses 15 and 16, let me just read it, because I think it is a very striking paragraph here. Um, and always regard the patient forbearance of our Lord as salvation, as our dear brother Paul also has written to you in virtue of the wisdom granted to him. That is what he says in all his letters when speaking in them of these things. In those letters, there are some statements hard to understand, which ill-taught and unprincipled people pervert, just as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own Ruin. Now, looking carefully at the paragraph, whoever wrote Second Peter may have been Peter, may not have been Peter, but whoever it was standing in that uh, proto-orthodox tradition, there, they considered the writing of Paul to be tantamount to scripture.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, virtually irrefutable, and it is uh, a New Testament writing, and I think clearly first century, uh, as you mentioned, uh, whether Peter wrote the book or or someone else, I think there's really no other legitimate way to construe the intended meaning of second Peter three, fifteen, and sixteen along the lines that the author considered Paul's letters scripture. And uh, we see that also in other places, I mentioned I've done quite a bit of work on the Gospel of John, and I'm increasingly convinced that that John too uh, viewed his activity of writing a gospel as producing Scripture, because, you know, he starts out with, in the beginning was the word, uh, alluding to the beginning of the Old Testament. And so he's clearly continuing and completing Scripture and exhibiting this kind of consciousness of of essentially writing Scripture. To us, it seems, you know, incredible that somebody would write uh, conscious that they are writing Scripture as they're doing so, as opposed to that only being some sort of a later perception but I think that is exactly what we find and I think the other gospel writers you have some very similar phenomena at work Uh, Matthew with his genealogy kind of updating the Old Testament Luke including uh, some sort of what scholars call Septuagintalism's almost uh, imitating or echoing the style of Old Testament narratives, again, exhibiting this consciousness that he's continuing the narrative of what was considered to be Scripture in his day by continuing the record of God's uh, activity uh, among his people, now narrating the story of Jesus.
0: Okay, well, I do think that this argument so far is, you know, is very persuasive and takes us a long way down the road back towards the person of Jesus himself and what he taught. However, I do think there is a certain l- little gap left there because even if we accept that the New Testament contains the writings of the apostles who, let's say, stood by analogy in the position of the prophets of the Old Testament, okay, so if we accept that, um, there's still the question... Did the apostles correctly interpret the teachings and the mission of Jesus? I mean, there is that, that's still that little gap there, isn't there?
1: Well, um, there's every reason to believe that they did. First of all, they were, of course, taught by Jesus himself. Secondly, their witness is very early, you know, within literally years, you know, not even decades or centuries of Jesus' own ministry. Uh, when you look at first century historians, what was usually critical was the proximity of witnesses or even eyewitnesses to the time that they are writing about. And uh, you're probably familiar with the writings of Richard Bauckham, uh, his his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses the Gospels as eyewitness testimony, who uh, has, I think, very persuasively argued that the Gospels represent eyewitness testimony. So you're exactly right, though, that, uh, you know, moving past just the power thesis into the first century, when you look at the historical evidence that we have, it becomes all important, you know, if the documents that we have are reliable— And um, I think by every indication that we have, we have multiple attestation. You have uh, accounts such as the resurrection corroborated in all four Gospels and Paul's letters and so forth. You have the fact that two of the four Gospel writers claim to be members of the 12 apostles, uh, Matthew and John. You know, you have just the closest possible connection between uh, Jesus on the one hand and then the writers of the Gospels on the other. Mm.
0: Even in the case where we are not sure whether certain writings are written directly by apostles or dictated by apostles to an amanuensis or whatever it might be, um, we can still be pretty certain that those people stood within that tradition may be disciples of apostles, that kind of thing. There is indeed indication within those writings that they stand firmly within the apostolic tradition based upon what we know about materials that can be more definitely pinned down as apostolic.
1: Exactly. And, uh, you know, I think the best passage for that to go to would be the preface to Luke's gospel, where he says that many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. There's this word eyewitness, which in the Greek is autoptoi, which means, you know, optic, you know, seeing and the idea of autos, meaning by themselves. So they have seen for themselves. And so even though Luke here candidly acknowledges that he himself was not an eyewitness, he's Mm. firmly grounding his account in eyewitness testimony. In the case of Mark's gospel, and Bacham is very strong in that, uh, he demonstrates how, how Mark's gospel really reflects the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter. So, so you see that really all four gospels are strongly grounded in eyewitness testimony.
0: Excellent. Let's look at, uh, finally, part three, um, perhaps the briefest part of our conversation here. uh, But it's a very important part. Uh, Part three is called Changing the Story, where you look at the legacy of Bauer, another one of his his legacies, this time in the area of textual scholarship, considering issues to do with how the New Testament texts were copied and transmitted over the centuries. And we have looked at this a little bit in the past, but I think it would be good to go back over this a little in connection with Bauer's kind of ideas here. So what is the connection? How did Bauer's work particularly influence this field of textual scholarship of the New Testament?
1: Well, um, certainly people like Bart Ehrman uh, have taken this and have made application to the question of the reliability. Of the copies, especially the New Testament writings that we have, because Bart Ehrman, his primary field of expertise is text criticism. He wrote his dissertation on what he calls the orthodox corruption of Scripture, where he uh, has argued that early scribes actually were orthodox. <laughs> ironically, since he denies that there was such a thing, but and so they tended to conform the, the manuscripts that they copied to their orthodox beliefs. And so as a result, he says that, uh, ironically, as he looks at it, you have this orthodox, quote-unquote, corruption of Scripture. So those scribes, according to Erman, were well-intentioned. But despite their best of intentions, they, in fact, changed and, as he would call it, corrupted the New Testament writings. So I think, once again, the, the reliability of our New Testament, of our Bibles, is called into question.
0: Yes, um, actually, I did enjoy that book, The Orthodox Corruption of Critical, when I, when I read it. I think the title is rather tendentious. Uh, but, um, it's, uh, much more, it's not a polemic, is it? Like a lot of his popular material is. Um, I found it a lot more level-headed. And I found the idea that some of those textual variants might actually be theologically motivated actually quite persuasive um, only as part of what was going on. And I suppose that would be part of Bauer's legacy, wouldn't it? The idea that the different communities, as it were, battling out with their ideas against each other. And so there would be a pressure for each community to make theological changes in some cases in order to press their particular version of Christianity. So I suppose that's how Bauer Mm -hmm. is informed that way of doing textual scholarship.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, Ehrman did make a contribution. He looked at the variants that we have uh, in part as windows into the early Christian communities that copied those manuscripts. And as you mentioned, there's a certain resonance there with the Bauer thesis, of course. What is important to point out is uh, what is presupposed in Ehrman's uh, early work here is that he and others are still fairly easily able to recover what the original wording is. And then they're able to monitor any deviant readings as, you know, reflecting this tendency to quote-unquote corrupt scripture based on, on the orthodox beliefs of those scribes. And I think uh, to some extent that actually is an argument that works really in, in favor of of the notion of orthodoxy and of even the stability of the text that we have, that we are able to fairly easily uh, recover the original wording, even where scribes might have messed with it.
0: Yeah, this is
1: what's so remarkable, isn't it? Because uh, in a book like
0: Misquoting Jesus, one of his more popular books, he seems to speak in such a different way. I mean, he's there; he's he's working as a textual scholar. He he knows the tools of the trade. He's working with these particular texts, and he's presumably working towards getting out what the proper reading of these texts is. Uh, But when you turn to misquoting Jesus, he says, and this is not an exact quote from him, but he says something like there are more variants in the New Testament manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament itself, which of course makes it sound absolutely terrible. Like you can trust no word in the New Testament at all, you know. That is really quite disingenuous, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And I think he really has almost like two personas. He has the persona of a scholar, like you said, where he writes more for his peers, his scholarly peers, where he is more restrained because he knows he, you know, simply cannot uh, make those broad generalizations. But then he has a different persona more in his popular writings, you know, in his interviews and public uh, debates and and, and lectures and so forth, where I think he feels a, a lot more freedom to engage in those very broad generalizations that he really deep down inside must know as a scholar are really ultimately, you know, untenable I think to some extent he probably evolved from his earlier writings because there's a very strong school of thought now in text criticism uh, that was not around as much when he first started out as a text critic that says that we ought to no longer even try to recover the original text where (laughs) basically people are saying uh, that's an an elusive and, and really misguided Project and really all that matters is to to just learn more about the communities that produce the text and to some extent you know again choosing some sort of a form of agnosticism as to but not even just agnosticism but affirming that it is ultimately irrelevant you know what the original text oh. might have said but. Then at other times uh, in his writings, you still see vestiges of the old Barderman, if you will, that he still pretty much presupposes that it matters what the original text said. And he also exudes a certain degree of confidence that uh, an intelligent and well-skilled text critic like himself is easily able to determine what that original reading was.
0: Yes, indeed. And you have a number of points here which I think give very good reason to believe that, you know, it is possible with a good amount of work to come to an understanding of what the New Testament original indeed was, which of course is why the results of textual scholarship do find their way into Bible translations when the findings are secure enough. Um, You say that we have good reason to think that we have the original New Testament in the overall textual tradition. Now that's, uh, I love that idea. Could you flesh that out for us a little more? We have the original New Testament in the overall textual tradition.
1: Yes, I think what we're uh, emphasizing here is that Clearly, we have, you know, over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts, not all complete, but at least the parts of the New Testament, which is an incredible amount. And so what the original authors wrote is likely preserved in at least some of those manuscripts. So it simply then becomes a matter of responsible text criticism to determine through a variety of means, internal evidence, uh, external evidence. Uh, and variety of other tools uh, what the original reading was. We have it. We just have to determine what it is. And in most yeah. cases, uh, I think it is fairly easy to determine, or at least by process of elimination, to exclude some variants as, you know, transparently haven't entered in, uh, because of either spelling differences, nonsense readings, just singular readings, uh, meaningless word changes, definite articles. Errors of hearing, of seeing, and, you know, the list goes on and on. So I think I would agree with the early Bart Ehrman that in in most cases, I think in the vast majority of cases, it is is very easy to see how a given error could have crept in. And it's very easy for us to correct those. And this is where you get
0: that... A surprising statistic, this uh, very exaggerated statistic from, isn't it? Where you have the oh, more errors in in the uh, manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament is because you have indeed this. I think it's often called an embarrassment of riches with regard to the sheer number of fragments and manuscripts that are available. You said over five thousand, mm-hmm. and if uh, each of those has got some spelling errors and some nonsense readings that can be sifted out by good scholarship and um, word order differences, which don't actually change the meaning, and definite articles attached to names. And Things like the John, the Jesus, which other manuscripts don't have. If you've got all those sorts of things appearing across 5,000 different collections of writings, then of course you're going to get a vast statistic. But it's chalk and cheese, isn't it, to compare that to the sheer number of words in the New Testament? That's illogical, isn't it?
1: yeah it it is rhetorically effective, hmm. but uh, I think it is also um misleading because it <clears throat> suggests that basically there 's this pervasive uncertainty you know that hangs like a london fog over over the right. New Testament that you know you just can 't see anymore uh, you know what the New Testament is saying, so you basically have to succumb to this widespread doubt or even skepticism that art Ehrman has adopted and really I think in the end, I think uh, his problem is not text criticism. He's at least written one book, uh, God's Problem on the Nature of Suffering, where he says that really in the end, his problem is that he doubts the existence of a God who allows for suffering and so forth. So I I, I feel like in some ways, text criticism becomes some sort of a, a front for deeper theological problems that are the real issues. Text critical issues are, you know, maybe not the real issue. Yeah.
0: Well, having said that, though, there are a few variants that are significant, aren't there? I mean, you, you mentioned a few in the book. But again, whether they're genuine readings, whether they're accurate or otherwise can be determined by the methods of text-critical analysis, you you bring up a very famous one, first uh, John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Let me just read that. Uh, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in in earth the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree in one um well part of that i understand is not well attested in early manuscripts and so textual critics say well that little bit is not original so it's not a problem it's discovered it's
1: yes that's right and uh, if i may briefly mention we have you know, with a different set of co-authors. I've written two books, uh, Truth Matters, which is a more popular book, and then the more extensive book, Truth and the Culture of Doubt, which also deal with Ehrman. And in particular, we uh, look at every one of those six or eight problem passages, so-called, that Ehrman regularly cites as evidence for the The corruption of Scripture, and and we look at each of them on a case-by-case basis. And uh, I think what he sometimes says is that true scholars have known for a long time that there's problems in the New Testament, but uh, pastors and, you know, uh, maybe conservative seminary professors want to keep that from the unsuspecting public. And so he's actually doing the public a service by letting them in on this well-guarded secret that there's those problem passages. And I think the fact is it's not nearly as well-guarded because most of our Bibles uh, in the footnotes uh, actually acknowledge yeah. that passages like First uh, John 5, 7— uh, yeah, that you mention uh, were not uh, found in really any of the earliest manuscripts. Or another example would be uh, the uh, pericope of the adulterous woman uh, in uh, in John at the end of John seven and beginning of of John eight. Where once again, I think anyone listening to this could look at their Bibles and uh, they will find a footnote indicating that many earliest manuscripts do not contain that. So is it is simply not true that those six to eight passages in any way are indicative of the entire New Testament, as Berman sometimes seems to suggest. Those are very limited number of passages that, for whatever reason, crept into the textual tradition, especially the majority text tradition that then developed into the King James Version and so forth, and, and so they would be contained there, uh, even though they are not found in the original, uh, you know, the earliest manuscripts. But it certainly does not follow, as Bart Ehrman says, that therefore the the entire New Testament is equally, you know, up for grabs, if you will.
0: Mm, indeed and it's open it's uh it's an open secret isn't it because i've turned to my niv which i use very regularly passages like that are bracketed off and they're in smaller print and it's just obvious and it says as you say at least manuscripts do not attest this etc etc or in minority do um so yes as you say john 8 1 to 11 the woman caught in adultery do go and check that out people if you haven't uh, looked at that story it's a lovely story and i can see why people are very attached to that and it does seem very characteristic of jesus in Fact. Uh, but if it's not attested particularly well, then I think it's right to bracket that off. And of course, the same with Mark's long ending. So, this is chapter 69 to 20. Most Bibles these days will have that bracketed off and it will tell you why. Um, but those, as you say, are very few. And indeed, if you were to remove those completely, would it affect anything in terms of the narrative of the New Testament or indeed the theology of the New Testament?
1: I think it's intriguing that even Bart Ehrman admits that. All those variants do not in any way affect any of the major doctrines of Christianity. So uh, yeah. that's a remarkable admission from one of the main detractors of Christianity, and I would certainly agree that that he could easily set aside uh, those passages that we just talked about where there is a certain amount of, of textual question attached to them, and it would not affect the the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, you know, and many other central tenets of Christianity one bit. Absolutely. Well, to end the discussion, I would like to bring
0: up one thing that you do mention a number of times throughout the book, which is of a more philosophical nature, but I think is intriguing. Possibly problematic, but uh, very intriguing. And this is the idea of historical paradigms, you say, just for example, here on page 101, that the Bauer-Ehrman thesis is wrong, not just in terms of its interpretation of the historical data, which is what we've been talking about, but, but really in terms of its interpretive paradigm, which operates, you say, with an anti-supernatural bias. In the historical method, so I have a couple of questions related to this. Um, how does Bauer's anti-supernatural bias affect his research? I mean, how does it, in your view, skew the picture so that he doesn't read the historical data correctly? Yeah. Just one second. I've been interrupted by my one-year-old son, who's cleaning his teeth. <laughs> no problem. That's all right. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> is that all right sorry about that
1: sure well no problem good night good night
0: <laughs> oh dear oh there we are anything can happen um and frequently does all right so how, how does bower's anti-supernatural bias yeah. affect yeah. his research
1: in bower's case i'm not sure that he is very strongly guided by anti-supernatural presuppositions you know i don't want to exaggerate that i As a scholar, I don't believe in impugning someone else's motives, and I'm to some extent willing to give him the benefit of a doubt and to simply deal with the evidence that he adduces. That said, there's a very strong stream of of German scholarship that he certainly is a part of, which is uh, that of the Tübingen School, you know, the so-called historical critical method— So there's certainly a certain maybe historical background to it. People like uh, Johann Salomo Semler who separated out Scripture from the Word of God and drove a wedge between that. There's a sense that Scripture is not inspired, is not revelation and so forth. So I would say certainly he operated primarily as a historian. Nothing wrong with that, but I think maybe there's certain limitations if someone is maybe methodologically constrained to exclude supernatural phenomena, I think you see that a lot more strongly with Bart Ehrman, where uh, he claims to be a historian, but one suspects that quite often his overall theological views and agnosticism uh, enters in. Uh, Certainly in, in his more recent writings, I think he recently wrote a book called How Jesus Became God, where he argues that essentially Jesus did not even claim to be God that was just a later claim that was uh, imposed on him by uh, later Christians and by the way, that elicited a delightful response, how God became Jesus. <laughs> Very nice uh, touch there. So, uh, so in any case, I think you're, you're right. I don't know that we have time to exhaustively discuss this. It's almost like that would be a different conversation. But but clearly, uh, the question of historical method uh, really looms large as we talk about how does one even determine anything that happened you know, two millennia ago. Yes. Now,
0: you're bringing up that book by Ehrman reminds me of something that he said in it. I remember him writing on the resurrection, and he he seemed to discount the possibility that the resurrection could have been a miraculous event, because he couldn't, he said, as a historian, allow a supernatural explanation. But I thought that really did skew things, because if, in fact... The resurrection did happen Mm -hmm. and uh, hence was a miraculous event. Then a method of doing history that in principle excludes events that even point in the direction or even invite an inference to a supernatural explanation that that method of doing history then will exclude what in fact, happened and lead the historian to prefer another materialistic alternative that in point of fact did not happen. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, it's this principle of anti-supernaturalism that's at fault here because if the historian simply remains neutral, you know, they don't have to go there. They could remain open to the data that points in the direction of an extremely unusual event and leave it at that. You know, it's a mysterious event. They don't have to choose a, a much less likely explanation in historical terms. Mm-hmm. They can accept that it's a mysterious event and leave it at that. Um, if they then wish on philosophical grounds, theological grounds to say, well, this is a miraculous event, then OK, that might be arguably stepping outside of the uh, discipline of history. But at that point, that's fine. Um, but there's no anti-supernaturalism there skewing yeah. the interpretation of the data such as to lead to a false conclusion.
1: Yeah, I certainly agree. And uh, even in preparation of our conversation, I, I reviewed William Lane Craig's uh, website. I think it's reasonablefaith.org. Uh, he has a transcript of a debate between himself and Bart Ehrman that took place in, in March 2006. But I think it's still very relevant with the topic. Is there historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, the Craig Ehrman debate? And I think uh, Craig masterfully engages Ehrman on this, especially Ehrman's unwillingness to engage the specific evidence that is multiply attested to phenomena such as the empty tomb or the post-mortem resurrection appearances of Jesus at one point to 500 people at, at a time. He points out that any open-minded historian would need to acknowledge that there's significant evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, but Ehrman dismisses that, I think, very lightly, just pointing to the, the limitations of the historian, you know, not being able to make any statements about God, and so I think in the end... What William Lane Craig shows is that it really comes down to the question of the existence of God, because the claim is that it's this God who raised Jesus. And so uh, the problem there that came out in the course of the debate is that, of course, Bart Ehrman is an agnostic. He doesn't really believe in the possibility of of, of knowing whether or not there even is a God. So again, you see the power of presuppositions, no wonder he then yeah. did not affirm the you know, the historical probability of the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't believe in the, our ability to even determine the existence of God in the first place. Um, in
0: connection with this, as part of your argument, you do bring up the role of the Holy Spirit, um, Now, I agree with you. The Holy Spirit was indeed active in the formation of the canon, in the transmission of the text, etc. I I do believe that. However, you seem to use it sometimes as part of the argument that we can be sure about the Bible that we have, because the Holy Spirit was active in the creation of it. Do you think within historical studies there is room for making statements like that?
1: Well, we think there is. And I appreciate, uh, Julian, you raising that candidly, because I think if there's anything that we have been criticized in reviews, it is that very thing that we mentioned the Holy Spirit in the latter parts of our book. And so I, I think... First off, I would point out that the vast majority of our book does not necessarily depend on <laughs> arguments from Absolutely. the spirit. It's actually yes. very interesting that uh, that Howard Marshall, in his uh, preface to our book, which I greatly appreciate, says very clearly that the arguments in our book, and I briefly quote here, are not dependent on A belief in the inspiration of scripture and rest on solid evidence and reasonable arguments so that our case should be compelling to those who may not share our theological position. Of course, R. Marshall, one of the preeminent New Testament scholars, you know, of our day, he rightly points out that for the most part, our book is addressed to people just on the basis of historical work. Reasonable argument, but you put your finger on, on, on this one area in our book, uh, toward the end, where we do introduce the, the role of the Holy Spirit in the, in the canonization process, and I, of course Mike Kruger, who is primarily responsible for uh, those chapters— and I, you know, very advisedly uh, considered uh, whether or not we would be vulnerable to <laughs> objections by historical critics, if you will. Yeah. But we decided that we certainly do believe that the spirit did have a role and we feel like uh, the historian ought to be open in principle to the supernatural, not that we hopefully uh, use an argument an appeal to the Holy Spirit as a substitute for, you know, other kinds of argument, but 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 I think that to supplement it because I think at some point we felt it would be disingenuous on our part uh, believing in 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 the role of the Holy Spirit in 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 this process if we were pretending that we don't or we uh, yes. excluded that from from you know our presentation.
0: Yes, I, I absolutely see what you mean. I can say absolutely for sure that it is the case that you do present arguments that are very cogent and do not rely upon that kind of supernaturalist argument you know, for the vast majority of this book. So people should not get the false idea about this, but you do bring it up. And I wonder at those very few moments where you do mention the Holy Spirit in this uh, historical context, whether at those moments you are writing more to believers than you are writing to unbelievers. And If that's the case, I don't see there's a problem with that in that you could say like a a subset of people who are studying this historically would be people who believe in God, take a confessional position, and for them, their worldview includes God. And so therefore, it would be reasonable for them to believe that the Holy Spirit would have a role in the unfolding of history. So am I right then, in those particular paragraphs where you mention the Holy Spirit in this historical context, you would be writing for that subset of people who do have a theistic worldview?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I think uh, given the the more popular nature of the book, part of our uh, intended audience were people who might be seeing, you know, a Bart Ehrman or or reading one of his books or seeing a a scholar in in, in maybe a special at Easter or Christmas and – And wanting to maybe equip them. What might be the underlying uh, paradigm, you will, that those people are operating from? And I've actually had good success in talking about the heresy of orthodoxy to a group of pastors, even in a local church context. And Mm. I've been surprised by this. I didn't necessarily expect it to resonate as. Deeply, but it really has. I think a lot of people, uh, maybe you never heard the name Walter Bauer, uh, have have seen the relevance of Mm. of the book. And and as you mentioned, certainly, you know, firmly committed to the uh, inspiration of Scripture. Yes, absolutely. It's because it's because
0: of those, as you call them, specials. We call them documentaries over here, but the same kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's because of those and the popularity of those that people are indeed becoming very aware of these issues and need a resource like the heresy of orthodoxy to go to, which I keep saying I recommend it. I do. One of the highest recommendations I'm saying from this podcast to date. Um, last I I
1: want to be fair to Bauer. Is, is there anything valuable from Bauer's work that we can thank him for, would you say? <laughs> Certainly. I like the fact that he was making an effort to engage in historical research, and uh, maybe he has certain blind spots and he overlooked some evidence, or, you know, I might feel he didn't always interpret the evidence in the way that may be most probable, but that said, I, I certainly... Enjoyed interacting with him on the basis of the historical evidence, because I'm also uh, firmly committed to New Testament research and even New Testament theology to being primarily a historical task as Christians we don't have to engage in this irrational leap of faith that we believe things you know either despite the evidence or or in you know, where, where we lack evidence I think that's another thing i've seen uh, Ehrman stereotype, Christians as even in the in that Craig Ehrman debate, Craig, William Lane Craig does an excellent job in in kind of pushing back against the stereotype that, you know, somehow history and theology are either at odds or are are mutually incompatible. I I feel like uh, history becomes a very important lens through which to understand uh, theology and, and ideally they would go hand in hand. Certainly, as a biblical scholar, I'm not afraid of history, and I'm very happy to engage with others who are serious about looking at the historical grounding of christianity so actually despite of what it might have appeared through much of the interview i actually have uh, great respect for walter bauer and and, and, and at least for his mm. for his aims to uncover uh, the nature at least of second century christianity
0: mm-hmm. and i suppose there's some sense of Somebody had to do this. Somebody had to ask these kinds of difficult questions, provocative questions. And when you do set the ball rolling in that way, then obviously people are going to respond. And out of this comes a vast amount of scholarship that otherwise wouldn't have happened.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's uh, even with with heresies, as you know, it's led to church councils, really solidifying, yeah. you know, uh, historic Christianity and, and and some of the core beliefs. And and so, uh, yes, yeah, sometimes you know we're too complacent or or too quick to assume the truth of certain things. And it's scholar like Bauer or even Erman that force us to engage the evidence, and and hopefully our faith will be stronger as a result of it. And Be living proofs that the stereotype people like Erman are often projecting is inaccurate, that the only option is either to be a historical skeptic like he is or to be this pie-in-the-sky believer who (laughs) doesn't really know what's going on hmm you're clearly not that anybody who
0: reads your book will know that immediately it's full of data and full of argumentation um i mean academia is still to a reasonable extent under the shadow of bauer in in that area of study um what is your view do you think that there's hope that such areas will become freer in later years in the pursuit of historical study
1: yeah, I think the evangelical movement has made uh, significant gains in the last few decades. Something of, of scholars like Craig Keener, who wrote a massive book on miracles, and uh, others like Craig Evans, and you know even people like Richard Bauckham, who you know I had my disagreements with, but still I appreciate his, his concern to show the eyewitness nature of the gospel witness, and and so certainly even the the, the current uh, younger generation of scholars i think uh holds great promise for a very respectable engagement uh, with the evidence that still affirms a high view of scripture at the same time so i think the outlook is very bright and i think the the historical critical method is nowhere near you know as strong in, in its hegemony that it held over previous generations of, of scholars
0: mm, that's wonderful news yes indeed well, thank you very much indeed, Dr. Kirsten Berger, for this absolutely fascinating conversation that we've had here today. Um, I'm going to yet again recommend people to get a copy of this book, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, and I'm going to give it its subtitle again, How Contemporary Culture's Fascination with Diversity Has Reshaped Our Understanding of Early Christianity. The copy that I have here is published by InterVarsity Press, but I think it might be published by Crossway these days. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, thank you. Thank you very much indeed for coming on it has been wonderful speaking with you before we do end though i just want to ask you about your organization this is biblical foundations
1: what, what do you essentially do there well biblical foundations is essentially a ministry uh, with a website biblicalfoundations.org which is an extension of my own teaching public speaking ministry and also is including other resources it's essentially a library of biblical resources that are available for free for download uh, blogs videos audio lectures other materials resources uh, for people in the churches and so i think the idea is that it is basically a global classroom if you will but it's not even just for academics it's really for anyone who's interested in what the Bible teaches on, on just about any subject, whether it's related to marriage and the family, which I have a very strong interest in, or, uh, you know, the New Testament writings in particular, apologetics and so forth. Hopefully, uh, we can include a link to this broadcast uh, on there as well in the course.
0: I see. Excellent. So it's not just concentrating on the areas that you've been looking at in this book. Yes. It's much wider than that. That's great. And can people contact you personally if they have a question through that website?
1: Uh, absolutely yeah there's a place on the website contact uh, tab where they would be very welcome to write in and i love uh, interacting with people and answering any questions they might have excellent well
0: thank you again dr kirstenberger fantastic i really enjoyed this conversation really enjoyed the book and uh, i thank you very much for giving up so much of your time for this conversation
1: you're welcome julian thank you very much i enjoyed it